So if, if you've known me for any length of time, you probably know of my love for C.S. Lewis. I, I tend to look for excuses to, to quote C.S. Lewis in sermons, and um, while I don't agree with everything that Lewis said, I, I think he was, uh, well, he was right about a lot of things, but maybe more than that, he knew how to beautifully express a lot of things. One of the most formative moments for me, just in terms of spiritual growth and uh, sanctification that I look back on uh, when I was in grad school, actually, uh, in my 20s, was when I read the Screwtape Letters for the first time. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that, I'm, I'm sure most of you are, but it is a fictional account between two demons. Uh, one sort of the elder uncle writing to the younger nephew about the fine art of tempting human beings. Uh, and so this is kind of how you tempt them. This is where they're weak. This is how you proceed with the, the process of drawing them away from the things of God and moving them toward the things of hell and so on and so forth. One of the most remarkable things that I drew from the Screwtape letters is that Screwtape is absolutely convinced that uh, the enemy, which is, which is the Lord, right? He calls him the enemy in, in these letters, is, uh, is, is trying to sell humanity on this lie that, uh, that he really has created them to love one another. Right? Screwtape has a really hard time with that, the, the whole concept of loving one another. And indeed, he says to Wormwood, his nephew, he says, our job is to draw them away from that conviction that they should love each other and instead convince them over time that all of their relationships are opportunities for competition. Right? So, so all of their relationships are to be not of a loving nature, but of a competitive nature so that they can try and destroy each other rather than trying to love each other, right? And I thought that was a really profound insight that you actually, it's one of those things that when you, when you kind of wrap your mind around it, you actually start to see it not only in life, but in the Word of God as well, that we are, we are called away, we are ushered away by the kindness of God from seeing each other as primarily uh, a competition or a threat and instead seeing one another as uh, objects of love, so, so people that we love rather than people that we have to protect ourselves from or, or, or have the edge on or have the upper hand on and, and so on. Our, our text in Ezekiel this morning, if, you're going, uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, please turn to Ezekiel chapter 20, 22, excuse me, deals with some of these very things. And so we'll begin in verse 1. This is in the context of the ongoing declaration of God's judgment on Jerusalem. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, son of Adam, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city, the city of blood? Would be another way to put it. Then declare to her, we're talking about Jerusalem here, all her abominations. You shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her time may come and, and that makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made. You have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations, a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. 
Behold the princes of Israel in you, every one according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood. People in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles daughter-in-law. Another violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest in profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure? Can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, disperse you through the countries, consume your uncleanness out of you. And you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. This text is a declaration of Jerusalem's sins to Jerusalem. The main event, the, the, the most central thing to understand, because it gets repeated a bunch of times, that's how I know it's the main event, that's how I know it's the central feature of the text, because there was no bold or italics key in the writing of uh, ancient manuscripts. If they wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it. And so what you keep seeing is that Jerusalem is a city that sheds blood, a bloody city, verse 2. It literally means a city of bloodshed. And so what we're dealing with is the biblical category of blood guilt, which is actually a category that is far more comprehensive than I think sometimes we realize. And so certainly blood guilt includes murder. And you might have heard blood guilt, the biblical concept of blood guilt, associated with abortion, I think rightfully so. Uh, but it extends beyond that. That's what Ezekiel lets us see. Because he, he declares Jerusalem to be guilty of blood guilt, but then doesn't immediately talk about murder. He talks about a bunch of other sins first. And so I want you to have this idea in your mind that, that yes, blood, blood guilt is serious offense, and we, we tend to think primarily of murder there. It's a bit wider than that. Uh, Old Testament scholar Horace Hummel says that blood guilt involves not only the taking of a person's physical life, but also social oppression and ritual misbehavior. It's what we see here in the text, which we, moderns, would probably classify separately. All those things tend to get blended here in Ezekiel 22. So Jerusalem gets called a city of blood, verse 2. Uh, Jerusalem gets called a city of blood. Go there now? Great. Uh, you, son of man, will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. Right? Thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst and makes idols. So we have the blood guilt and we have the idolatry. Ezekiel's talked quite a lot about the idolatry before. And so... What I want you to notice so far is that Israel, Jerusalem, gets called the city of blood, the bloody city. 
It's interesting to note that the book of Nahum, what we, one of the minor prophets, in Nahum chapter 3, uh, calls the Assyrians the bloody city. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Nahum was pre-exilic, probably written about 50, 60 years before Ezekiel. And so this is terminology that Ezekiel is borrowing from Nahum, but not for the Assyrians, but for Jerusalem. Not for the Gentiles, but for God's covenant people. Why did the Assyrians get called this? Uh, why did they get, they get judged in this way and given this label? Because they treated their captives, suffice it to say, really, really harshly and terribly, and they were really proud of it. So this is kind of meant to be a shocking statement that now this, this moniker is given to Jerusalem. Now verses 7 through 13 function as a kind of list of charges that God has against Jerusalem, especially the rulers. And it is first in verse 6 that they have shed blood. Okay, So verse 6, Behold the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power have been bent on shedding blood. So with the power that they have, whichever prince, ruler in Israel we're talking about, whatever amount of power they had, they used it in order to sin. Idolatry, blood guilt. There are three main areas between verse 7 and verse 13 that get identified. First is the mistreatment of high things. So things that are, are holy and precious to God get made like garbage. Uh, second, uh, sexual sin, that's verses 10 and 11. And then third, greed, extortion, and financial abuse. All of these things have something in common, and, and that is that they treat people as though people are disposable and treat the things of God as though they are disposable. And honestly, when I was first putting the sermon together, I thought we were going to make it to verse 16. But I want to camp out up into verse 9 for this morning, and then we'll pick up the rest in Sundays to come. What I want you to see is, as we begin, though, is that verses 7 through 13, if you've got a Bible open and you can kind of see the, uh, the, the, the bigger forest there, make up a list of sins, charges against the rulers, and to some extent, I think the wider population as well, but we're starting with the rulers. And he starts with, verse 7, as the example of blood guilt, dishonoring mom and dad. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't see that coming, right? I would not have said blood guilt and have gone straight to dishonoring mom and dad. This is a good place for us to be reminded that the fifth commandment about honoring father and mother is not actually just a commandment about parents. It is a commandment about authority in general, but since mother and father are literally the first authorities in your life that you meet, God plants the foundation of of larger respect for authority there in the fifth commandment. But I, I do want to emphasize here, we see this not just in Ezekiel, but in Jeremiah as well, that God cares about how you treat your mother and your father. How you treat your parents actually tells, tells me and tells others a great deal about your character. I know especially the younger you are, the more you want your goodness to be measured by just about any other metric. 
your physical beauty or your intelligence or how funny or clever you are or how easy it is for you to get attention or how free and independent you are. Uh, Any other kind of metric, please go ahead and measure me by those things. But please don't measure me by the way I talk to my parents and the way I treat them at home. But I, but I want to remind you that the Lord places a special value and a special priority on this relationship. Because your relationship with your parents begins as one of absolute need and dependence, right? When they do everything for you. And everything means everything for you. For years. And after a few years, it, it kind of levels off to them doing mostly everything for you. And then a few years go by and it's maybe just most things uh, in general, then, then some things for you. And as you grow up, they're doing less and less for you until you mature into an adult. And there is a temptation in your flesh. It's universal, by the way. It's not special to you. But there's a temptation that the older you get, is to the, uh, the, the temptation will be to treat father and mother with contempt. That is, despising mom and dad by, I mean, this can take any number of manifestations, by cutting yourself off from them, by mocking them, by rejecting them, by treating them like they are foolish. What, what's happening here, a lot of times, is that as you grow up, you get this sense, like the older you get, the more you realize how much a, a whole lot of the world is outside of your control. And so you get really, 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 um, I guess desperate would be the word, to feel powerful. And so you assert your dominance over the people who did everything for you when you were powerless. And you really hate that. You hate there was a time that you, you were completely in, in total need. And so... Your, your parents kind of become reminders of that weakness, reminders of that need. Uh, and, and so that it gets annoying. It starts to stir up anger and resentment in you. And so when you're young, your parents are the greatest threat to your desire for power and control. And so it is that, to, to go back to younger years, so it is that during that time you will be tempted, young people, to cultivate disrespect for them, right? Which will normally take the form of eye rolls and uh, this noise. You ready for it? Okay. Okay. That's, that's the one. That's the noise we want to we we condemn as we, as we, as we grow uh, in faithfulness and grace and mercy together. So as you get older and you move into adulthood, though, the temptation remains. But it looks a bit different. And you will be tempted to judge your parents harder than you judge other people for their sins. Why? Well, for two reasons. One is because you've seen their sins in yourself, (laughs) and you really hate that. The second reason, though, is that their sins are the ones you've had to put up with for the longest amount of time, right? Just by sheer mathematics. Literally from day one. And so as you get older and mature into adulthood, what happens is you have a growing patience for everyone else around you and a growing impatience with your family because you've had to put up with them longer than anybody else in your life. 
It's always easier to be really nice to strangers and to new friends. Everybody can do that. It's very unimpressive. In contrast, God in the fifth commandment calls you to honor your mother and your father, which when you're little basically looks like joyful obedience. As you get older, honor is going to take some different forms like respect and generosity. As you get much older, honor is going to look like service and provision. But the honor happening in this relationship is usually a good indicator of your ability to honor and love others well. Now the question that almost always, I'd say just inevitably comes up in in conversations, discussions, especially sermons that involve the fifth commandment is what about situations where there uh, is abuse? And so that's a matter to be handled with great care and great wisdom. And if you've been a victim of real and deep abuse, honoring your mother and father will be difficult for you. And it will probably look different for you. If you've been the victim of real and deep abuse at the hands of your parents, I mean, you know, for starters, of course you're not going to, like, leave your kids alone in the room with them or something like that. That's not being mean. That's just being wise. So what does honoring them look like? It, it means doing whatever you can within the bounds of wisdom and sacrifice to honor the reality that they are still mom, that they are still dad. Okay? So uh, within the bounds of wisdom and sacrifice, it, it, it might be something you, you, you don't really want to do, but, but you do. Um, in other words, you, you pass up every opportunity to get your revenge by, by hurting them or by utterly depriving them of their grandchildren. It doesn't mean you pretend like the past didn't happen. It means you live as though the past is not an excuse to indulge in revenge. And that includes passive-aggressive revenge, which is its own kind of thing, but I'm just throwing that in there as well, that, that our hearts can be very sneaky in the way that we guard ourselves from not being guilty of this or that sin. So honoring father and mother is apparently so important to Ezekiel in this moment that it's aligned with this, this charge of blood guiltiness. Okay? Next we have the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow in verse 7. So the sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. He's being defrauded or wronged financially. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. Now these are three classes of people who in the ancient world were very easy to mistreat uh, because uh, they have no power. They have no power. One of the most common temptations of our flesh is to reserve our help and our energy and our kindness and our generosity for those who can repay us. And that doesn't mean necessarily money, by the way. You and I are constantly tempted to give the greater portion of our time, our kindness, our warmth, our compassion, our generosity, to those who can pay us back. And, and, and maybe they can't pay you back with money. But maybe they can pay you back with affirmation. Maybe they are really uh, beautiful or good looking. So if they affirm you, that means you have value. Or maybe they're just really popular and adored by everyone. So if you can get on their good list, you might catch a little bit of that attention. Or maybe it is money. Maybe they're really wealthy. So if you spend all your generosity on them, they might just in turn be really generous to you. Sojourner, 
the fatherless, and the widow have no power and nothing to owe you with. That's the idea. They have, they have no social capital to spend on you. I think this parallels in our own day. Uh, sojourner, fatherless, and widow might be something like uh, immigrant, child in foster care, single mother. I think, I mean, or, or I think widow would still work um, as, that, as that category. But to give you, I mean, to give you some categories that would, would work in our day as well. Now, because what, what here, what's happening here is people who have no, say, power in society and they don't have anything to give back when you help them, so they are the most vulnerable, easiest to take advantage of, right? And so here we see them being taken advantage of and not valued and protected like a ruler is supposed to do. Now, when we talk about uh, power and... Um, differences in power. I want to be careful there, and I want to briefly mention, thanks to, in part, to uh, things like, um, maybe you've heard of, of critical theory or stuff like neo-Marxism, our world solution to the, to the power differential and our culture's solution to a power differential is to forcibly redistribute power. That is, to beat down and punish and handicap those with power and to make victim sat- status itself a means to acquire power. Uh, because these worldviews see power and, and money and resources as a big pie, and so if one person has a big slice of the pie, that means necessarily that everybody else gets a tiny slice of the pie. I would actually say that's not so in God's world and in God's economy. In God's world, the pie grows. But since our moment is obsessed with uh, power differentials and power distribution. You have fights in culture, fights in families, fights in marriages, where it basically becomes a victim competition, and whoever has the most hurt feelings wins. It can be deeply manipulative. But that's our world solution right now, which is to weaponize victim status so that it becomes both a shield and a sword. A shield because you get pity, a sword because uh, you get to excuse your reactions. But God is telling people, you've ignored the people in your midst who have needed your help the most. You have only focused on helping those who can help you, such that your good works are never really sacrifices at all. They don't cost you anything. Your good works don't cost you because every good work is like a potential investment in your own selfishness or self-protection maybe. Now look at verse 8. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Where did that come from? Again, we got, we got parents, we have mistreatment of the vulnerable, and then Sabbaths. When you consider what was in verse 7, why are we now talking about Sabbaths? Well, this is actually part of the pattern. The pattern is, you take the things I have called good and beautiful and worthy of your attention and care and reverence. You've regarded them as low and worthless, and not worthy of your time. And as far as I can tell, there's very little in American Christian culture that is so widely ignored as Sabbath worship and Sabbath rest. But another connection, since it's Sabbaths, plural, is that this is probably a reference to Israel's refusal to obey God's commands to celebrate the Sabbath year every seven years and the Jubilee year every 50 
which was sort of like a once-every-generation financial agricultural reset. Um, and it, but it was a way to uh, not drown people in debt. That was part of the reason for it. And so, we see that, so you see there, this can still actually be about loving my neighbors and, and caring for them and protecting them. Verse 9 then talks about the man who, uh, who, men who slander to shed blood. Now, that's, that's a weird phrase. There are men in you who, sl- who slander to shed blood. <coughs> this is actually still talking about mistreatment of neighbor. Basically, this was a, a kind of Hebraic expression. To slander to shed blood was when powerful people would get rid of people they found obnoxious, <laughs> by lying about them or making false accusations against them. So in other words, I want power. You're in my way, so I'm going to do something about it. Okay, uh, By crushing their reputation, maybe even in Ezekiel's day, getting them killed with some kind of false legal uh, court accusation. I mean, that should remind you of Jesus, right? Who was put to death under the words of, of false accusations. And so, this also goes back to verse 6, doesn't it? Uh, Remember earlier in verse 6, we read, The princes of Israel, everyone according to his power. So this is how he's using, how how these princes are using their power and influence and authority. Bent on shedding blood. Basically, what we have here in verse 9 is the use of lies and, uh, 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 and false witness to get somebody out of your way. So, the most obvious way I see something like this happen today is, is by way of uh, labels that we can put on people in order to discredit them. If, they are, if you are a threat to me, if I can properly label you and discredit you, then I don't have to worry about you. Um, so let me, let, me, let me give you some examples here. I've, I've seen this in family dynamics and I've seen it in friendships as well. Uh, there's a word that we use. Uh, it's, it's relatively new but has become a rather powerful term to refer to uh, unhealthy relationships, and that is toxic, right? We speak of toxic relationships, or, or even I've even heard references to like toxic people. Now, that terminology has some value. It can be good to identify uh, that you might be in a relationship marked by destructive patterns, and, and a good example of that would be when someone is is trying to care for an addict but ends up enabling them. So they're trying to help them. What, what the addict needs is actually kind of a tougher love. And meanwhile, the person who's trying to help is really just being absolutely drained of all their resources, emotional, financial, spiritual, mental. It's just leading to more and more destruction. That's, that's an example. And so it really is that in a sinful Genesis 3 world, there will be destructive things in relationships that require them to be corrected or even suspended. What, what I'm noticing, though, is that because you and I live in a culture obsessed with power games and labels, sometimes call, using a term like toxic it can also be a really efficient way to justify hatred, to justify rejection. It's one of these high-value labels that can get thrown around, and it has a lot of power. And so if everything in your culture is about power differential and and relationships between people get reduced to power games and we are all desperate for power, then we might 
I mean, a biblical term would be curse. We might curse people we don't like or that are in our way uh, with labels that will, that will give us power and that will put them down. And so I'm trying, trying to paint that picture for you. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But I want to say that slander is what was happening in Israel, a slandering that was allowing princes to expand their power by, uh, by crushing others with false accusations. And so if you carelessly throw out what I'm going to call a high power label because you know it will get results, you can destroy their character and get them out of your way, never mind evidence, never mind witnesses, never mind what Jesus called us to do in Matthew 18. That's the, that's the sin we're talking about. Power-hungry people will use things like this, false accusations, in order to keep their power and get people out of their way. And so God takes careless slander a lot more seriously than we do. Because we are a people who worship a God who has spoken to us in words, and because we are a people who worship a God who himself claims to be the truth and in fact is, then the way that we use our words to speak of ourselves, to classify and designate ourselves, or to classify and designate others really, really matters. Here in Ezekiel, God compares wrongful slander of my neighbor to blood guilt. And in fact, Jesus himself made a similar kind of comparison in Matthew chapter 5. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Jesus told uh, his hearers, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, the, the word there is racha, which is basically a, um, a first century term meaning you, you're, you're worthless. Okay? You, you, you have no value. You are worthless. You are empty. Uh, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar... Remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go, and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. Judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus here is saying that anger with my brother... And, and holding up hatred against him is a kind of, as it were, if, if, if you want to use it this way, murdering him in my heart. Right? And this comparison between slander and murder is a comparison that makes sense, again, if you think about it for more than a few seconds. Murder is the unlawful killing of another person. Slander is the attempt to murder a person's reputation and character unjustly, without evidence, without witnesses without any kind of due process so i want us to reflect on what we've found here so far ezekiel condemns this impulse to misuse and abuse power in the rulers of jerusalem and he does it in four ways by it takes shape as despising mother and father mistreating the vulnerable profaning the sabbath and slander it's taking high and holy things, right? Like the vocation of mother and father. 
Like my vulnerable neighbor who's created in God's image. Like the Sabbath and, and the rest and worship that God has set apart for His people. Like the reputation of my neighbor and what might happen to him if he is uh, labeled by false accusations. Taking those, those heavy things, real high set-apart things, and treating them like garbage. Treating them like they're very disposable. So God has a way of looking at the world when He says, here is what is truly valuable. Here is what is truly virtuous and true and good and beautiful. I mean, things like um, joy in the Lord and wisdom and forgiveness and resurrection. And, and you and I in our flesh are tempted to say, I want to be the judge of what is valuable and good in this world. And my metric is, does it help me? Whether or not it helps me, whether or not it makes me happy, whether or not it makes me feel better, whether or not it gives me power. And so you see what you realize then when you read the Gospels is that during Jesus' earthly ministry, He valued that which God had declared to be valuable. He honored His parents. Right? The Bible tells us that uh, He became submissive to Mary and Joseph as long as He lived under their roof. He, he moved toward the hurting and the suffering rather than away from them. He honored the things that God declared to be honorable. And one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life is that you, Christian, by the kindness of God Himself, are both, in a way, quite, quite powerful and quite powerless. Briefly. You are, in a sense, quite powerful because you've been brought into the body of Christ. He's baptized you. He's made you His. He's filled you with His Holy Spirit. He's given you His promises. He's equipped you with this armor of God. He said, it is time to turn your sword away from your neighbor's and every threat to your own power and influence and popularity, and instead, turn it against your own sin. Right? And he, then He's actually enabled and equipped you to do that. To, to go to war against your own selfishness, against your own hatred of your neighbor, or just against constantly ascribing to your neighbor every kind of suspicion. Go to war against your own defensiveness and insecurity. In other words, the, the call to self-control that we have repeatedly in the Scripture is an amazing thing when you, when you think about it, that, that the Lord would, over time, actually grant to you the, the, the strength and the grace and the sanctification to control the impulses that would otherwise run your heart and mind and life. But you're also absolutely powerless to grab and keep anything by your own strength. This is why we preach salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Because if salvation and forgiveness of all of your sins is by God's grace, that means there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to settle that account yourself. There's no arrangement you can reach with God such that you can make sure, okay, I've done my part, I've paid off my bit, and now God owes me. Right? If, it's, if it's by grace, there's no mechanism whereby you can make that arrangement. Salvation by grace alone means that you have nothing. It's not a gift. You have nothing 
It's not a gift. Oh, no, Pastor Brian, you don't understand. I'm a really hard worker. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I did my life my way. Biblically speaking, God's response to that is, please don't make me laugh. You're living on borrowed air. Borrowed strength. Borrowed intellect. Borrowed wisdom. And you... The the sin of taking all those gifts and using them only to feel better about our own strength, stronger in our own might, wiser and tougher and better than my neighbor because, because Screwtape told me I'm always in competition with him. You see? The only thing you have to boast in is Christ alone. The only thing you have to brag about is look at what God can do with a sinner. Like, you want to see what God can do with a sinner? Let me tell you what God does with sinners. What God does with messed up people like me. And He transforms them and changes them. Look what God can do with a sinner like me. Because we preach, I mean, think about it. We preach a crucified God. Right? We preach a crucified God-man. That's how backwards our religion is. How cool is that? We preach a naked, tortured man on a cross who gives you eternal life. Like, maybe that, that kind of washes over you because you've heard it so many times. We, like, we preach a naked, tortured guy on a cross who gives you eternal life. And so we of all people should know that God's ways are weird. And not what we expect. The way up is down. The way to be a ruler is to be a servant. The way to be at the front of the line is to sprint to the back. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So then the question that confronts you and I this morning is, where have we been devaluing for our own benefit what God has called us to value? Where where God has called it good, we've said, I'll tolerate it or I can make it work for me and then it's good. The liberating reality of Christianity and the gospel is that you can joyfully and gladly, happily and quickly serve those who cannot pay you back. Like children. (laughs) Right? This is why Jesus says, let the little children come to me because little children can't pay you back. This means that you have the freedom and indeed the confidence and the the God-given, Holy Spirit-wrought, word and promise protected ability to love those who are hard for you to love. You can actually serve your family. While the rest of the world despises their families, you can actually serve yours because God calls it good. You can give up your need to be Either a control freak, because it gives you security, or a victim, because it gives you attention and pity. You can give up both of those. Because you have been remade by the God who let His power and His reputation and His glory seem to have been totally stolen away from Him so that He can get low enough into the pit of death and selfishness and fear and insecurity to look you in the eye and say, rise up. Rise up. Your sins are forgiven. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You're free to love even your enemies. 
In this confidence and joy, we march forward, not of our own strength, but of him who calls us to impossible things like this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So, our Father, we ask for your help in this to identify the ways in our own life that we devalue what you've called good, to be quick to repent over that, to celebrate what you've called good in a a world that's, that's forgotten. And so you call us to to wave banners of remembrance, as it were. Indeed, as we gather here around your table to remember what it is you have done. We pray that you would meet us here with grace, with grace for the work ahead, with faith for the challenges ahead, that you would meet us and serve us and feed us with these things which we need most in Jesus' name. Amen.